Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. And a warm welcome to First Move. Fantastic to have you with us this Wednesday and another key day for U.S. economic data. New numbers raising hopes that inflation has finally begun to plateau or even slow. Moments ago, the U.S. reporting that headline consumer prices rose at a year-over-year rate of 8.5% last month. Yep, that's still near a 40-year high, but it did ease from the more than 9% level seen in June. This pricing pullback was expected due in part to recent softness in U.S. petrol prices. What wasn't expected was a better-than-expected read in the core rate, and the core rate strips out food and energy costs. That came in at 59 annualized expectations for were for a rise to over 6%. And this is a number that we talk about because the Fed says, or at least Jay Powell has said recently, that this is a better predictor of where prices are headed in the future. So as you can imagine, positive news in the eyes of investors, U.S. stock futures. I can give you a look at what we're seeing. Extending earlier gains, the S&P 500 on track to rise for the first time now in almost a week up over at what, as you can see there, more than one and a half percent pre-market. The hope is that softer inflation numbers will allow the Federal Reserve to raise rates less aggressively. But of course, Fed policy setters have also made it pretty clear that they want more than just one month of improvement. Now, also today, Europe is on the rise, boosted by that U.S. CPI news after a weaker handover from Asia, with the Hang Seng falling 2% on continued tech weakness. So a real tale of two halves there. Okay, Let's talk U.S. price pressures. Rahel Solomon joins us now. And unlike me, she's been poring over the details of these numbers um, over the last 30 minutes or so. And I can tell you from the brief read I got, they may have come down, but energy is still a huge problem. They may have come down month over month, but you're right. I mean, when we look at sort of annualized where we're seeing price increases, the most energy is still at the top of the list. I think we can show that to you. Uh, energy prices up almost 33% over the last year. Food prices uh, almost 11% over the year. Gas 44% and shelter, which is really problematic, is 5.7%. But, Julia, the good news here is that when you look at sort of month-to-month -month what's happening, especially in energy, we're actually seeing declines uh, for energy, gasoline, fuel, and that sort of made its way into jet fuel prices, and we saw lower airfare prices. So uh, overall, it is still clearly problematic, but it is moving in the right direction. We also saw some declines for uh, energy and gas, as I said, but we saw some increases, however, month-over-month -month for things like like food and shelter. As I just mentioned, food prices increased 1.1% uh, over the last month. So still showing a, a problematic trend there. But overall, 8.5% compared to what we saw last month of 9.1%, certainly not necessarily a reason to celebrate. It's still very high, as you pointed out, Julia. But it is starting to feel like maybe, just maybe, we can see the end of the tunnel. We can see the light at the end of the tunnel. Important to note, one data point a trend does not make, but it is certainly a, a positive move from what we saw last month. Let's talk about how the Fed is going to look at this, right? We know uh, Fed, Fed Chair Powell has said that he is looking at that month-over-month -month core inflation to start to decline. 
We're not seeing that, but we are seeing the price pressure start to ease, start to decline there. So up 0.3%, three-tenths of a percent for the last month, July. That's the lowest, Julia, we have seen since March. So that's a good sign. That's moving in the right direction. So the hope is that if we continue to see that, uh, maybe the Fed can start to take its foot off the brake. Well, the September FOMC meeting, we have another CPI report. We have another uh, July. We have another jobs report. So a lot can happen between now and then. But part of the reason why you're seeing the reaction we're seeing in the markets is because these numbers today uh, leading investors to believe that, well, maybe we'll see half a percent in September. And that's uh, certainly leading to uh, the feeling that maybe a soft landing could be possible. Too early to know for sure, of course, but could be possible. Yes, one data point does not a trend make before we get too enthusiastic. It's so funny. It tells you what kind of environment we're in when there is a celebration. And you can see it in stocks pre-market at an inflation rate of eight and a half percent, which is um, mind-blowing. Yeah, and that happens a lot on this show. So, yes, Rahel, thank you. Great yep. breakdown. Rahel Solomon there. Cash on hand. Elon Musk, meanwhile, selling nearly 8 million Tesla shares, raising almost $7 billion amid his legal battle with Twitter. He tweeted in the, quote, hopefully unlikely, close quotes, event that Twitter forces the deal to close and some equity partners don't come through. It's important to avoid an emergency sale of Tesla stock. Paula Monica joins me now. So this is uh, what, almost $7 billion worth of Tesla shares sold in addition to the $8.5 billion that he sold back in April in anticipation of this deal. Um, he's right, he doesn't want to surprise the market, but you could argue he sort of surprised the market with this latest sale, having said he wouldn't sell more back in April. Yeah, I mean, obviously, Elon Musk says a lot of things on Twitter that he then either clarifies or backtracks on. And I think, Julia, it's important to note that his hand could be forced, and there are analysts who are starting to speculate that absent a significant settlement, more than the agreed-upon breakup fee, Musk may either have to pay more to make Twitter finally decide to throw up their hands and say, OK, we get it, Elon, you're not going to buy us, but just give us more money, or they're going to force him to actually buy them for $44.5 billion, which means he is going to need more funding to secure, so to speak, a Twitter acquisition that he no longer wants to do. Yes. Funding not secured, perhaps at this stage, if you look at the tweet that he put out saying perhaps some equity partners, maybe those that said initially that they would be willing to join this, don't decide to uh, to, to jump on board if he's forced to sell this, I mean, uh, if he's forced to buy this. I guess that's the challenge and that's the fear now for, for Tesla investors that he's not done yet. If he is indeed forced to do this, he perhaps is going to have to sell more Tesla stock. Exactly. And of course, now there are growing concerns about a digital advertising recession, even if we are not officially in an economic recession. And those uh, inflation numbers coming down are encouraging, coupled with strong jobs numbers. But we've seen the results from Twitter, from Snapchat, from Facebook parent Meta. There are legitimate worries among uh, corporate advertisers about the economy right now, and they are pulling back on advertising. That's not great news for Twitter. And I think Elon Musk probably realizes as well that, you know, maybe the whole spam and bot issue is a convenient excuse for him to walk away from a deal where he might have had buyer's remorse because he's realizing that 
oh yeah, maybe I don't want to spend this much money on an advertising platform at the time where we might be heading into recession. Yeah, perhaps bought at the highs. Um, from Dan Ives, who's a regular on this show, the biggest fear has been that Musk sells more stock and that's just what's happened. It's a near-term gut punch. There's, there's no explanation and that adds to the uncertainty. And to your point, Paul, that's not going away anytime soon. Paul and Monica, thank you for that. Okay, let's move on. President Zelensky says Ukraine's war with Russia will only end when Crimea has been liberated. He was speaking after a Russian airbase on the Crimean Peninsula was hit by several explosions. Authorities in the Russian-occupied territory say one person was killed. Ukraine has not said whether its forces caused the explosions. David McKenzie joins us now. David, there's two things there. There's fighting talk from President Zelensky suggesting that beyond the situation that's taking place in Ukraine now, they're actually going to go after and try and take back Crimea. But also this attack in Russia, Ukraine's not taken ownership of this. What more do we know? Well, it's not really in Russia. It's in uh, occupied Crimea, in Crimea that has been controlled apologies, by the Russians yes. since 2014. And, and so that is, uh, but that really drives home the point is that the reason that uh, President Zelensky says that uh, they will take back Crimea, that is, for most Ukrainians, the original sin. Uh, 2014, Russian troops moving into Crimea, taking over that highly um, sought-after, I guess, uh, peninsula, a crucial part of Ukrainian history and culture. Uh, and in the last uh, 24 hours, we've seen potentially uh, the Ukrainians having the capacity to strike far outside of Ukrainian-controlled territory onto the western coast of the Crimean Peninsula. You see those dramatic pictures uh, of explosions, several of them, uh, some of them behind uh, Russian uh, tourists at the beach. This will have a very important psychological impact. And as you say, Julia, they haven't uh, interacted with these facts. They uh, have said they have no information. Uh, but the question now, did the Ukrainians do it? How did they do it exactly? Did they have a capacity for that sort of long-range strike, if it is a strike? Here's uh, President Zelensky. This Russian war against Ukraine and against all of free Europe began with Crimea and must end with Crimea, its liberation. Today, it is impossible to say when this will happen, but we are constantly adding the necessary components to the formula for the liberation of Crimea. So the question that this now poses, if Ukraine was responsible and they have the capacity to strike that far outside of their controlled territory, it could be a game changer, say, uh, military experts. And it does, as I said, have a very psychologically important impact, uh, both on the Russian side and on the Ukrainian. Julia? David, thank you so much for that. David McKenzie there. Now, former President Donald Trump is set to testify in a New York case against him Wednesday amid mounting legal scrutiny of his conduct. He was seen leaving Trump Tower a short while ago. The deposition is part of a probe into the Trump organization's finances. The former president's extraordinary week began with the FBI searching his Florida home on Monday. Then on Tuesday, he lost a running battle to prevent the release of his tax returns. Cara Scannell joins us now. Cara, good to have you with us. What might today bring? Well, today the former president is heading to the New York Attorney General's office to sit for a deposition. This is part 
of the New York Attorney General's civil investigation into the Trump Organization's finances and whether some values of his properties were inflated that could have defrauded banks, lenders, and possibly tax authorities. Uh, the stakes here are very high. The big question of the day is, will the former president answer the questions or will he take the fifth and assert that right not to incriminate himself? Now, sources tell me that he's been advised to do both things by different camps. Some say that he should answer the questions because he has previously addressed how he comes up with these valuations and what his role is in the preparation of the financial statements. Others say the risk may be too great because there is a parallel criminal investigation by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. That investigation is still ongoing. And when I interviewed the Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg in April, he said any any um any testimony that is done in a civil case is something that they would take a look at for their criminal case. So something here where the stakes are very high. And as you see on the screen, the former president is facing a range of investigations, um, everything related to the January 6th riot on the Capitol, uh, to these financial statements. Uh, now, his children, Donald Trump Jr. and Ivanka Trump, recently were deposed by the New York Attorney General's office as part of that investigation. They answered questions under oath. But his other son, Eric Trump, was deposed in 2020, and he took the Fifth Amendment more than 500 times. Julia? An extraordinary week indeed, Cara. Great to have you with us. Thank you for that. Okay, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. China says its Eastern Theater Command has completed exercises around Taiwan a week after launching military drills. Beijing still plans to maintain pressure on the island, saying there will be frequent patrols in the direction of the Taiwan Strait. Earlier, Taiwan authorities said 36 Chinese warplanes were detected in the area and 17 cost the strait's median line. Selena Wang is with us now from Beijing. So China's now saying these drills are over, but they also reaffirmed at the same time that the One China principle and the principles upon which reunification may be achieved with Taiwan in future. Just talk us through the details of that. Yeah, Julia, that's exactly right. These most recent drills may be over, but the pressure on Taiwan is not. China's military is saying here that they've successfully completed what they wanted to in these drills following Pelosi's visit. But the key point in their announcement is that they plan to regularly organize patrols around Taiwan. We also heard China's government also just publish a white paper today reiterating that while Beijing prefers unification by peaceful means, they are keeping all options on the table, including the use of force. So this recent announcement, this white paper, all of this fits into the concerns from military experts, American and Taiwanese officials who say, look, we're entering a new era where we're expecting more frequent and aggressive military activity from China. And that Pelosi's visit was just an excuse for Beijing to step up these long planned intimidation operations. We saw during these drills that China went further than what most expected, flooding the skies and the seas with warships and planes, shooting missiles over Taiwan Island even for the first time. All of this is part of what Beijing has called a practice blockade. And these provocative actions have won a lot of praise at home, where Beijing has justified all of these moves as defending China's sovereignty. Now, we've heard Taiwanese officials raise the alarm, calling these provocative moves attempts to weaken public morale in Taiwan and wreck the long-term status quo. Now, Pelosi has returned, and she's given several interviews defending her trip. Take a listen to what she said here. I don't think that the president of China uh, should control the schedules of members of Congress or anyone else who wants to visit Taiwan. He's trying to isolate Taiwan. 
and the fallout to U.S.-China relations continue. You heard Pelosi's argument there that it is not up to China to dictate who can travel to Taiwan. Right now, you've got both sides pointing fingers at each other. The U.S. blaming China for overreacting and for manufacturing this crisis, whereas China is blaming the U.S. for provoking them and forcing them to take strong action. Beijing has been arguing for a while now that they think the U.S. has been hollowing out the one China policy. We're going to see this bilateral relationship continue down that downward spiral with China also announcing recently that it is going to suspend cooperation with the U.S. on a range of important issues, whether it's climate change or defense. And Julia, while we have avoided direct conflict this time around, the concern is that with the deepening mistrust between the U.S. and China, the lack of communication and more aggression from Beijing, that moving forward, this increases the chance of of a miscalculation or an accident that could lead to real conflict, Julia. And that's the risk. Selena Wang, thank you so much for that. Now, China's Hainan Island, a popular tourist destination, is battling its worst COVID-19 outbreak so far. Nearly 600 new cases were reported on Wednesday. Authorities say some of the tourists who were caught up in a sudden lockdown while visiting the island have now been allowed to fly home. And a beluga whale that was stranded in the Sen River for more than a week has been euthanized. More than 80 rescue workers tried for six hours to return it to the sea, but they say the whale was ill, underweight and suffered respiratory failure. Many marine mammals have recently been reported in France far from their main habitat. And three golfers from the Saudi-backed Live Golf Series have lost their battle to play in the first PGA playoff event. Taylor Gouge, Hudson Swafford and Matt Jones had sought a temporary restraining order that would allow them to take part in the FedEx Cup playoffs, which start this week. A judge denied that request. OK, stay with First Move. We are back after this. Plenty more to come. Welcome back to First Move with perhaps an inflation revelation. Wall Street futures surging on news that U.S. consumer prices rose at a weaker than expected rate last month. Headline, CPI rising at an annualized rate of 8.5%. That's lower than the more than 9% rise seen in June. The core rate of CPI also coming in a touch softer than expected too. This is the first pullback inflation in inflation in four months, helped along by falling U.S. petrol prices that have dropped to their lowest levels since early spring. Now, the Federal Reserve hopes this will lead to a further easing in consumers' inflation expectations. The big question is whether this data will allow the Federal Reserve to be less aggressive in its rate hikes in the coming months. Tom Poselli joins us now. He's Managing Director and Chief U.S. Economist at RBC Capital Markets. Tom, great to have you with us. I think the um, the way to handle data at this moment is whatever you expect, expect the opposite, quite frankly, and then we get it. Um, I know we're celebrating, or at least investors are celebrating, an inflation of 8.5%, which also says something, but this is better than expected. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, so, sorry, for starters, good to be with you. Yeah, look, I think that um, this is a better than feared report. Um, and, you know, I, I, like I'm fond of telling people, it's you're not just going to get back to normal like in one month, right? It's, it's going to be a process. And I think it's fair to say that, you know, we, we're sort of at the, the very beginning of the process. And, and that's saying something because I think, you know, you think back just a month ago, um, heck, even a couple of weeks ago, 
um, I think you know, people really were unsure about where this was going. I mean, look, uh, I think there were a couple of things that really anchor our view um, and, 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 and sort of really inform us with regard to the, the idea that inflation will slow um, in, the, in the coming months. And we think it could actually surprise people how much it slows. Um, you know, one, you have bloated inventories. Um, I know that might sound like sort of a boring thing to talk about. Uh, in, in, in fairness, maybe it is. Um, but the reality is you have retailers that are sitting on a mountain of inventory, and that inventory is going to get discounted in the context of real volume of spending is now slowing. Um, you know, that will actually really help um, in, this, uh, in, this, in this context. So th there are definitely some reasons uh, to, to believe that the, the inflation dynamic will slow. It's not just a gasoline story. I mean, I, don't get me wrong. I get it. It's, you know, we all spend a disproportionate share of, of our money on, on gasoline. Um, but but it's, it, it's going to have to be other components that do the driving, I think, for the Fed to really feel comfortable. This is really important and it separates out what we're looking at in what we call the headline inflation rate and what we call the core inflation rate. And the, yep. the core strips out exactly what you're talking about, rising food prices and rising energy prices, which we all know and have experienced can be incredibly volatile. And even the, yep. the, um, the Fed chief, Jay Powell, got into a debate about this, about whether they would chase in terms of rising interest rates the headline inflation rate, which, as I've mentioned, is dominated by, by energy and, and, and food, or whether they would continue to yeah. focus on the core. And he said, look, that's the better predictor of prices going forward. So yes. to what you just said, um, do you think we've seen the worst in terms of inflation? So I think we've seen the worst in terms of core inflation. Headline inflation, mm. as you rightly highlight, it is, um, it's a tricky thing to forecast. Because you, when, you, when you're thinking about energy prices, right, which really dominates um, uh, the sort of the, 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 the headline at large, headline CPI at large, um, you know, it's, it's swung around by an assortment of different factors. I mean, there's, you know, just basic supply demand. There's geopolitics. I mean, there's an assortment of things that build into that. So this is why we've been saying for, a, for quite some time now that the Fed really does need to focus on core. Um, because they have zero ability, I want to stress this, they have zero ability to control food or energy prices. Those are idiosyncratic. There's, no, there's nothing the Fed can do about that. Core, on the other hand, right, so X, food and energy, they, can, they do have the ability to control that to a better extent, to a, to, to a greater extent. Um, and, and there, I think, you know, they'll feel uh, like we're in a very different place, I think even as soon as December. I think in December, I think we'll look back and I think you'll see this sort of mountain of, of, of an inflation run rate that we've, that we've come down on um, by, by December. And I think that that will take, that, uh, take us into, into the coming year for all the factors that I mentioned earlier, particularly around the uh, supply and the discounting idea. Yeah, interesting. So if you've got companies cutting prices of goods because they simply have too many in inventory, it says something also about the economic environment. Yes. And I want to talk about that, too, because yeah. shock, astonishing were some of the words that were used to describe the, the payroll report, the latest payroll report that <laughs> yes. we got, which was a complete blowout. And, and that, I know for you and for many others, was very jarring with numerous other jobs indicators, be they verbal, be they anecdotal that we're hearing from companies or, or other measures yeah. like surveys from businesses. So, so what's your sense of what's right and what's not and what we should be listening to to get a sense of, of where we're headed on the economic yeah. front, never mind on the pricing pressure front? 
Yeah, I, look, I think you're asking 100% the right question, right? Because it, it's, it, all of this stuff is, is it, they're all interrelated. It's not, um, you can't look at them in isolation in, in any way. Inflation is going to be slowing because economic activity is slowing. Um, again, that's, that's, that's not a guess. It's happening. We can have a, a, a discussion about the degree to which it's slowing. I mean, that's sort of what we're all doing now. It's like, you know, do we have a recession or not? Do we have a soft landing or not? And that's all, that's all right and fair. But I think what we need to bear in mind is that the, it, it, no one should be distracted from the fact that things are slowing down. So when I think some, about something like that payroll report from, from last Friday, um, that was just a blowout in every way, um, it showed, just to be clear, it showed an acceleration. And it showed an acceleration in growth at the same time that jobless claims are rising and now well off the lows. That happens to coincide with uh, company layoff announcements that are rising seemingly on a daily basis. Um, that we now have the household uh, employment measure that's now moving sideways and has been moving sideways for four months. That you look at the small business survey, the small business survey on the employment side is also starting to show signs of softening. So there, and, and, there, and the list goes on. Um, and yet we had this payroll report that showed an acceleration in job growth. I mean, that, that number defies sort of, you know, all of the other data uh, around it. So we'd be more of a fader of, 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 of that uh, dynamic. I mean, I think a lot of people sort of latched onto it to suggest that, you know, things were really sort of, you know, still moving along at a, at a, a or will continue to move along at a reasonable clip. I would caution against that. The payroll report is a lagging indicator. One of the best leading indexes or measures of economic activity in the United States is jobless claims, and they've been on the rise. Yeah, Tom, very quickly, because I have about 30 seconds. Yeah. What's, what's your sense of where the Fed stands in light of the latest data? Yeah, so I, 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 this number is not, enough, today's number, well, I, I do not believe pushes them to do 75. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, you know, the odds in the market, they've, they've now drifted below 50%. We agree with that. I think it's actually closer to a 30% chance of a 75 hike at the next meeting. Um, we, we, we would agree with that. Um, I think, you know, but, but because of next month's CPI, where the, the hurdle to see an acceleration core is actually still high because of base effects, just, you know, sort of easy year-ago comps or unfavorable year-ago year comps, I think that'll put a floor underneath the odds of 75 falling too far. But for now, I think that the Fed can get away with a 50 for sure. Yeah, Tom, brilliant to chat to you. Thank you so much, Tom Fuseli there. Thank you. Chief US Economist at RBC Capital Markets. Great to chat to you, and we'll see you soon. We're back after this. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move with US stocks up and running this Wednesday. And we've got a strong rally underway in early trade as investors applaud the first softer US inflation print in many months. Inflation is still close to multi-decade highs, let's be clear. But today's numbers raising the possibility, at least, that the US consumer pressures may have finally peaked. Stocks in the news today, too, include Wendy's shares of the restaurant chain lower after reporting weaker sales. It says consumers are not spending as freely as they were. Also, shares of crypto exchange platform Coinbase tumbling, the firm reporting a wider-than-expected loss of more than $1 billion amid ongoing weakness in crypto assets. And more high-profile earnings on tap later today, too. Entertainment giant Disney is reporting results after the closing bell today. Also, this Wednesday, Tesla investors not tense on news that Elon Musk has been on another cash-raising dash. Musk selling almost $7 billion in company stock recently, saying he'll need the money if he's forced to buy Twitter. Twitter shares also on the rise as well. Tech analyst Dan Ives, as I mentioned earlier, believes Musk's new moves make it more likely that a deal for Twitter eventually gets done. 
Now, from high inflation to high-end products, The Real Real is the world's largest online marketplace for authenticated resale luxury goods. Customers can browse through thousands of items from top names in fashion like Chanel, Gucci, Louis Vuitton, and Prada. The full-service platform not only allows customers to shop, but also sell their luxury items too. But of course, the pandemic has taken its toll on business and achieving profitability has been a struggle. Its second quarter earnings show its total revenue was $154 million. That's a 47% increase since last year. But it did also report a net loss of $53 million. The Real Real is also starting to see a shift in what consumers are buying, causing the company to cut its guidance for the year. Joining us now is Rati Sahi Levesque. She is the co-interim CEO and president of The Real Real. Rati, fantastic to have you on the show. Um, it's a moment Thank for you, big yeah. questions. Good morning. Not only for, for the real real, but also for the industry, I think, and resale and, and retail itself. We'll talk about the numbers, but I just want to start by getting you to explain the vision and, and what makes you uh, better than the other competitors out there. Yes, thanks. So we are the leader in authenticated luxury goods. Um, in comparison to a peer-to-peer site, we take possession of goods. Um, and we employ hundreds of gemologists, watchmakers, high-end handbag authenticators. We believe you need to take possession in order to authenticate. I'd say that's number one. Number two is about our technology. We, by the end of this year, will be taking in almost a million units, unique supply units a month. And because these are all unique, one-of-a-kind items, we've had to build um, very specific technology to funnel those through our supply chain. So the technology around that piece and all the technology that we built around being able to authenticate via machine learning, um, 40% of our handbags will be authenticated via machine learning by the end of the year. And then we've been able to cultivate a high-end luxury shopper and seller. So 28 luxury members are now part of our site, both buying and selling in our marketplace every day. And just to be clear, for, for people that are watching this and think, oh, you know, I've got all sorts of luxury goods that I might want to sell on. How much of the sale proceeds do they take home versus you? So it depends, but on average, about 35% depends on if it's high, uh, high value items, you get more if it's, you know, a Rolex watch versus a contemporary item or something under $50. So um, it depends on what the item is. But I will say because we've got the 12, the 28 million luxury shoppers are you earn the most with TRR um, because we've been able to kind of cultivate that community. Mm. There's, there's two. I mean, there's many interesting things in what you were just saying. There's there's the impact of an economic slowdown and, and the changing consumer behavior and perhaps going for lower price points if they're looking for something. There's also uh, the idea that in an economic slowdown or in an inflationary environment in an economic slowdown, if you can't afford high end luxury goods firsthand, you go to a resale site to, to get them cheaper. From the numbers, it seems that what more of what you're seeing is actually people trading down to, to lower prices, lower price points, and that squeezes your margin. Is that net-net what you're seeing? Yeah, but I would be careful about saying that it squeezes our margin. So we split the take rate with our seller. So we don't have that problem like a regular retailer would. There's no margin um, being squeezed there. So our our really our objective is to earn the seller the best price and TRR the best price of an item. Um, as far as, you know, the uncertainty of the future, I mean, I do think you know, there's two kind of schools of thought here. 
as as far as we are a value play. You know, you do see uh, luxury items up to 90% off on our site. So that could serve us well and be an advantage for us. Um, on the seller side, if people need to monetize their closet, you may see more people selling off. So we don't know um, for sure, but, you know, as far as what will happen. But I will say what we saw in Q2 was that our top of the funnel is quite healthy. What I mean by that is our traffic to the site, um, our conversion, our new and repeat buyers, our new and repeat sellers, all really healthy and strong. Um, our, you know, the, the, the challenge for us was, we're calling it the great resignation part two that we saw in early Q2, March and April, that um, kind of slowed us down a bit. Um, we saw more attrition than usual, and it was a little more difficult for us to hire up on our sales side. Um, and that kind of set us up for a softer Q3. We do believe that this is more of a speed bump and transitory. Um, this keeps us on track, even with this, even with the, this, you know, little bit of speed bump happening, keeps us on track for profitability in 2025 and 2025 vision. So this is a really important point, as you said, the fact that you can adjust to protect your margins in terms of what the seller gets versus what you keep is vitally important, I think, for resilience for the company going forward. But what you said about labor, and it's something that I think everybody's struggling with, but I think you made it very clear the importance of having those that can do the authentication, those that are involved in sales for the business too. Struggling to hire is is a, a sort of limitation on the, the revenue growth that you're seeing. Some part of that, I think, is the environment. Some part of that is the, the challenge that the real real is going through itself. I mean, your, your founder and, and CEO left last month. You're in a position where I know where you're, you're rehiring. What can you tell us about that specifically? Because uh, I think for, for whether it's investors or, or whether it's perhaps those that are looking at the real real and saying, should I go and work there? The message now is important, even in this interim right. stage. Yeah. I mean, you know, we're a mission led company. So every day we're changing the way people shop. And that's why that's why employees join us every day. Um, they want to be a part of the circular movement. Um, they care about the environment. Um, they're looking at regeneration. We know that if we circulate a certain amount of items every year, that will help as far as um, regeneration goes and the climate crisis is concerned. So we're a mission-based company and we have a team that's super passionate to be here every day. And then as far as, you know, the labor challenges goes, we saw this happen, you know, um, in our authentication centers in 2022, and we were able to course correct. Um, there's some certain there's certain actions that we took, a compensation being one of them, leadership being another, and then technology. So, well, something we're doing on the sales side is all about, you know, uh, self service, um, being able being able to get, you know, less friction for the seller so that they can consign. Um, with without labor, to be honest. And that's working really well for us. We're seeing productivity going up and we're seeing the units come in. So this quarter, like I said, it was a transitory issue. We feel good about the future. And I would say this quarter is really about training all these new hires and getting them ready for Q4. Yeah, I was just getting sidetracked slightly there by some really great looking handbags and uh, the authentication processes, uh, as you were mentioning. Um, and, and the message to investors here, uh, as I mentioned, you are on the search for, for, for a new CEO. The message to investors, because you did go public what, back in 2019. And as I mentioned, we've been through some very challenging years 
as individuals and as businesses, whatever sector that you're in. Um, but for those investors that are, are looking at the, the company now and saying, look, you know, what is the direction? What are the growth prospects? And, and should I either buy at what could be very valuable levels here or, or stay away till we have a better sense of the direction of the company? What's the message yeah. to investors? Yeah, you know, we're, we weren't a COVID friendly business. So COVID was quite mm. challenging for us. Now coming, you know, slightly out of COVID, the business has gotten much more predictable. So there's a lot of great things happening in our business. We're seeing leverage, great leverage. So we're, first of all, I want to say we're taking a look at everything, all of our costs um, with fresh eyes. And there's a lot of there's some low hanging fruit, you know, across the board. We are finding a lot of leverage in both our fixed and variable costs, as you'll see in Q2. Our margins have improved. Um, our flywheel effect is really working. We're finding great efficiencies in our back. So I, you know, you're really going to start to see those these losses narrowing by the end of the year. Um, it's a really exciting time for us, and you know, we believe we're very much undervalued right now. And you have the whole ex executive team. I mean, you know, buying stock to be honest with you. Um, because we know wh where this can think and go. And just very quickly, you're in for the long haul. Yes, definitely, for sure. We're looking to build a company that's going to last, you know, the next 50 to 100 years. Um, again, our, our, our team uh, feels the same way and are super passionate about what we're doing every day. Well, I hope we're not talking about it in 100 years, quite frankly, but we'll continue the conversation. Thank you so much um, for joining Thank us today. Thank you, Julia. Yeah, nice yeah, good luck with the you. Likewise, Thank just the beginning. Uh, that was Rati Sahil-Levesque, co-interim CEO and president of The Real Real. And that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. In the meantime, Marketplace Europe is up next. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.